Man, what a great set. That's a tough act to follow. That was really good, praise team. I appreciate that. Uh, I've got two quick things I want to mention to you before we get into the message today. One is our upward basketball season is just around the corner, and we are short a couple cheer coaches. And I don't know about you, but I can't do it. And so we need a couple cheer coaches that will help us out. If you're interested in that, you can see me or Kevin Peel. Kevin runs our upward program. And uh, if you're interested in coaching uh, some cheerleaders, we would love to have you help out. And then the second thing that I wanted to mention this morning is we printed a few of these out in the lobby. They're in the Welcome Center. It's our Celebrate End of Year newsletter. And you can see on the back what we did last year with the end of year money that was received. And then you can see what we want to do this year. We've got an anonymous giver that wants to match, wants to give a $10,000 matching gift if we raise 10000 to go to missions. And so that 20000 that we can give toward missions at the end of this year will actually put us over $1.5 given to missions over the last five years. So that's a really important goal for us. And if you can give as you will, we would appreciate that. I love the holiday season. I'm excited about Christmas. I love the holiday season. I love the decorations. I love the traditions. I love uh, the travel even a little bit. We travel about every other Christmas to see family uh, in Colorado, which is where Desiree's from. We love Santa. We have uh, two elves on the shelf this year, which has really uh, doubled our work efforts, but I even love that. I love family time, time away from work. I've got a limited edition Christmas vacation eggnog glass that I love to drink out of, and I've already utilized it a couple times this year, and I plan to use it again, but I love the holiday season. Also, I hate the holiday season. I don't know if you're that way, uh, but one of us in our house uh, just about lost it in the last couple of days. I won't tell you who it was or wasn't, but it's, it's tough. The holidays are a lot of pressure. Let me tell you some of the things I hate about the holiday season. I hate the expense of the holidays. Uh, I, hate the, uh, I hate the people that are really moody and irritable over the holidays, cynicism, materialism. I've noticed that the gym that I go to gets really crowded over the holidays. I don't know if you know that, but the machines that I like to use are not as readily available around the holidays. So I'm just, I'm just waiting until February and March when all those people give up on their goals and go home. That's what I'm excited about. So I, I love the holiday season, and there are parts of me that also hate the holiday season. Uh, sometimes we dread the holidays for a few reasons. Sometimes tensions are running high with people that we love. Sometimes people aren't there that used to be there, and we wish that they were still there, and they're not. Sometimes people are sick, and they can't make it to holidays. Sometimes people have passed. Sometimes decisions limit people from being around at the holidays, and so I know some of you in this room feel that very deeply. Some of you are about to go through your first Christmas without a loved one. And I am empathetic toward that. Some of you have lost a spouse or a parent or a child this year, and I can understand that that's very difficult. Some of you are on the other side of that. You're anticipating that this may be the last holiday that you will spend with a particular loved one. And with that thought in mind, I want you to turn this morning to Jeremiah chapter 29. We're going to be in Jeremiah 29. I'll have you stand in a minute, so don't stand just yet. Before we read our text... It's important to understand the context through which Jeremiah 29 was written. Uh, Jeremiah 29 has that passage in it that he gives us a future and a hope, and it's a quotable verse, and it's, it makes for a great bumper sticker. But I want you to understand the context by, why, by how we got Jeremiah 29. Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon has invaded the city of Jerusalem and the country of Judah. And he did this in 605 BC. You can reference Daniel 1 uh, to get a cross-reference for that. But they took captive an estimated 50,000 people. 50,000 people were taken and deported from their homes in Jerusalem 
to Babylon. Among these were the main elders and leaders of the community. They also took the engineers and the military so that there could not be an uprising uh, against Babylon. They took the best and the brightest of the youths. You remember Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel were four youths that were taken from the city of Jerusalem and taken captive to Babylon. The exiles were separated from their homes and their families. There was undoubtedly many who died as a result of the conflict. Jeremiah the prophet was left in Jerusalem and Daniel was actually one of the exiles taken to Babylon. It's estimated that Daniel was about 15 at the time of exile. So when Jeremiah writes this passage, the year is 597 BC, which means eight years have passed since the captivity. The, the captives and the exiles were about eight years into captivity at the time Jeremiah sends this letter. Daniel then would have been about 22, 23 years old. In chapter 28 of Jeremiah, which we won't take time to read, Judah has a makeshift king in King Zedekiah. They have a false prophet named Hananiah, and he is spreading a prophecy to the exiles that they would be able to return in two years. So he's told people in the Jerusalem community, hey, those people that were taken captive eight years ago, you remember them? They're going to be coming back in about two years. Word got to Jerusalem, it got throughout all of Judah, and it actually had gotten to some of the Babylonian captives that were living in exile and had been for eight years. Hey, Hananiah the prophet says we got about two years left of this captivity. And so it is with that backdrop that Jeremiah writes chapter 29 to the exiles to explain their future and what's coming for them. I understand I'm speaking to people today who are here wondering what's next for you with all you've been through this year. I can't tell you how many funerals and viewings I feel like I've been to this year and all the loss, especially over the last couple of months. Maybe there are some of you sitting here and watching online concerned that your future does not look as bright as it once did. Maybe you're in the midst of a waiting period wondering if God has abandoned you in exile. God, I've really had a tough year. I'm really going through it. I've lost people. I've lost dreams. I've lost relationships. I don't understand why you're doing what you're doing. You're in a waiting period. Jeremiah writes chapter 29 to Daniel and the other Jewish exiles who are living in a foreign culture and in a foreign land. And I want to invite you to stand with me as we read what Jeremiah says to them in Jeremiah chapter 29. Go ahead and stand with me. We're going to work our way through verse number 14, but for sake of time in standing and reading, I just want to read the first seven verses. Jeremiah chapter 29, beginning in verse 1. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah, the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And here's what it said, verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. He tells them, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find welfare. You can be seated. Thank you for standing. This morning, I want to preach to you on this topic of what it means to have a blue Christmas. Um, 
You guys, by the way, are the true Christians who have come to church today in the rain. You didn't get a sermon preview. You knew it wasn't Pastor Rob today, and yet you came anyway. I think there's a special place in heaven for you. Uh, despite the fact that I'm preaching a sermon called Blue Christmas, as many asked me in the last service and some of you in this service, no, I am not going to be singing it for you today. Uh, I thought about growing my sideburns out a little longer, but I didn't decide to do that either. Blue Christmas is the topic today from Jeremiah chapter 29. Identity theft is becoming more and more of an issue in our advanced technological climate. As a result, companies and apps are tightening up their security measures. I don't know about you, but I'm about out of password ideas. I'm out. I, I, got, I got nothing left. Um, I was telling this to my Sunday school. I've got an app on my phone that has logged me out, and I'm just ready to just delete the app or switch phones at this point. I don't know the password. I can't get back in. There's a particular app that I use that I am required to use, and if I wasn't required to use it, I would delete it or I would avoid it, but it's one I'm required to use, and that's all I'll say about it. I've reset my password about 20 times over the last two to three years, and every time you click forgot password, I click on it, and it says, have you forgotten your password? And I think, yes, that's why I'm here. It's the only reason I'm here. I would have avoided this altogether if I would have remembered my password. Uh, my password has to be reset for this app every 60 to 90 days. I don't know if the Russians are trying to hack into this particular app that I have, but that's what they're probably trying to do, and so I have to reset it every 60 to 90 days. By the time 60 days is up and I have to reset my password, I have just now learned the password that I previously had. There are seven requirements of this password for this particular app, and I want to give these to you because I think it's excessive and ridiculous. Number one, you have to have an uppercase letter. Number two, you have to have a lowercase letter. Number three, you have to have a number. And number four, you have to have a symbol or special character. Now, these four things are pretty common among most passwords, but this app takes things to a ridiculous level. Number five, here's the fifth, is it cannot be any previous passwords. Well, that's a problem because that's why I'm here in the first place. I don't remember any of my previous passwords. I got 15 different passwords I used, probably 40 variations. I can't remember any of them, so I don't know if it's a previous password. Here's number six, it cannot be a number sequence, like three numbers in a row that would normally go together. Well, that's trouble for me too because I was born in 1987 and 987 is a sequence, so I can't put that in. And so don't try to hack into my stuff, but then again, if you do, I don't really care. That's why I'm telling you here today. That's the sixth requirement. So you gotta have an uppercase, a lowercase, a number, a special character, no previous passwords, no sequence. Here's the seventh, the kicker. It has to be 15 characters long. 15 characters? Are you kidding me? I have text message conversations with people that don't go for 15 characters. You got to write a sentence or a paragraph, you know? You can turn it in as a college paper with that kind of password. At this point, I've got no more passwords left in me. And I've thought about starting a support group here that I would be the part of, that we can just share and commiserate together and generate some new password ideas maybe. I heard a comedian say this this past week. He said, my wife got her identity stolen. But so far, the guy's spending less money, so I'm just going to let it ride. <laughs> I thought that was good. Just letting it ride. Identity is important. It's important. You place your identity in things because they're important to you. The Jewish people, especially during this time period, which was 600 B.C., they were so closely tied to their homeland that it had become a part of their identity. 
I don't know where you attach your identity to in your life, but their homeland was so much a part of their identity that when they lost it, they didn't know what to do. You read through the Pentateuch. In Genesis, the land was promised to Abraham. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you read it. It's all about the land. It's all about the land that God was going to give them. Joshua, Judges, it's all about conquest of the land. By the time you get to Psalms, uh, David and other, other psalmists wrote quite a bit about the land. The one excerpt that I want to read from you is from Psalm 137. I believe that this was written by many of the Jewish exiles living in Babylon at this time. Here's what Psalm 137 says. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us a song, and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. And they said, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? What do you, what do, you do? What do you tell someone who bases their identity in a homeland after they've been separated from their homeland? What do you say to a person who has lost another person in which they place so much of themselves and their identity? It may seem a little cutthroat in this passage, and I'll explain why that is, but Jeremiah says for those living in Babylonian exile, he lovingly says to them, you got to get used to it. This is the new norm for you guys. It's not been like this before. Uh, your Christmases are going to look a little bit different here in Babylon. Your Thanksgivings are going to look a little bit different. The holy days and the holidays that you celebrated in Jerusalem, it's going to look a little different now. you got to get used to it. Even though Jeremiah was outside the situation, and did not fully understand what they had been through, he still gives sound wisdom for how to cope with their new situation. In this passage in Jeremiah 29, he addresses three types of people. We all find ourselves in one of these three groups of people at some point. He first addresses those, number one, that have a fading hope. They have a fading hope. They have a hope, but boy, is it dwindling. Boy, are we losing hope. It's becoming an increasingly hopeless situation. These are people who felt completely hopeless with their situation. This time of year, you do not have to look very hard to find these people. They live hopeless lives. They have lost all hope here recently. I've talked with many over the past several weeks and months that just have a, a feeling of overwhelming hopelessness. These exiles had lost everything in their lives except for their lives. They didn't get to call U-Haul to come over and help them pack up their things as they made their pilgrimage to Babylon. They didn't get that luxury. They were able to carry whatever they could get in their hands and on their back. That's what they were able to carry with them. These had lost their homes. They had lost their families, their communities, their careers, their freedom. They had lost relationships. Uh, they had lost uh, their future plans. They had lost everything for their future, their freedom. It was all gone. No matter how they looked at their situation, it looked hopeless. And I'm talking to people today that feel the same way. Man, my situation, it just, it just feels so hopeless. I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. I don't know what to do. I don't know who I can call. Have you felt that this year? I, I have at times. How are we supposed to respond when life seems so hopeless? When we have a fading hope in where life has brought us? Don't get me wrong with, with what I'm about to say. There's a time for grief and mourning the lost dreams and the lost people that have died in our lives. There's space for that. It's important that we take the time and space to properly grieve and mourn the things that have been lost. Uh, it's, it's good for you mentally, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, for you to mourn things that have been lost in your life. If you lost someone this past year, I'm not specifically talking to you with what I'm about to say, but the, the text to whom this is written, their tragic loss had occurred eight years ago. 
You know, I would like to think that I have moved on a little bit emotionally after losing someone eight years ago. I'm not in the same boat eight years ago that I am today. And what Jeremiah is writing to those that have been exiled now for the past eight years, he's saying to them, uh, it's time for you to move on. It's been eight years. It's time to pick up the pieces of your life and continue moving. Grieve what's been lost. But he says, don't live there. It's not what God wants for you to live there. He has more in store for you than living daily in the tragedy of what you lost. If it was God and he was done with you when you lost that person, he would have taken you as well. But he didn't. He left you here. He left you here for a reason and a purpose. Look at verse number four. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles. Then he says, whom I have sent into exile. I have sent an exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is a newsflash to these people because they probably thought this was just bad news. This was just unlucky. This is just unfortunate for us that we're here. God sent Babylon. He organized and orchestrated the entire invasion and captivity and exile of 50,000 Jews. He organized it. That tells me that God is not surprised by your set of circumstances. You may be surprised by it. You come and tell me about your situation. I may be surprised by it. But God is not surprised. One of the techniques that they teach us in psychology is that when you're sitting with a client and they tell you your story, you can't act surprised. Like you can't act shocked. Shannon, you would know this. When you're sitting with a client and you're there and they pour their heart out and they tell you everything that they're going through and it's awful, you can't sit there wide-eyed with your jaw dropped saying, that's the worst thing I've ever heard. I've never heard of anybody that has it worse for you. I wouldn't trade places with you for a million bucks. Your life is awful. You can't say that. Even though you may feel it, you can't say it. You can express empathy, but you can't really act like their news shocks you. You have to act act like you've heard it all before. And God is not shocked by your situation. He's not shocked by your circumstances. I think sometimes we go through something in life and we think, does God know what I'm going through? It's like we picture God in heaven looking down like, oh, no. What has happened? Wait, who died? Who is sick? Who, who was elected? Uh, who's fighting against what country? What is going on? I had no idea. I didn't know this was going to happen. It's as if God's in heaven looking around. What are we going to do now? God's not panicked by your situation. He's not taken off guard by it. In fact, when his own people were ransacked and taken hundreds of miles, exiled into Babylon, God allowed it to happen. He sent Babylon. If God would allow his people, the Jews, to be sent into exile, for his temple to be desecrated, and his own enemies to triumph, why would we think God would not allow us to go through tragedy? Why would we think we should be exempt from all the suffering that the Jews have endured if we too, as the church, are the people of God? God sent Babylon. He allows us to endure struggle as well. I don't know what you're up against. I don't know who's left you or what you've lost or who's abandoned you, what's not worked out for you this past year, but I do know that God is not surprised by your situation. He's not taken off guard. He's not shocked by what it is that you're going through. He says, whom I have sent into exile. If you feel like you're in exile today, I want you to know that God allowed you to be there and he's with you in the exile. He doesn't leave you. He doesn't forsake you. He's got a plan through it all and he doesn't abandon us. Look at verse number five. Here's what he says to them. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. He says lovingly, I know it's been eight years, but you got to get used to this. This is the new normal for you. 
He mentions three generations. God says, get used to living there. There's an app that you can download on your phone that I want to warn you about today, and it's a free app. Sometimes my kids will ask me, hey, Dad, can I download this app, and I'll take a look at it. And then they'll say while I'm looking through the app, it's free. And sometimes they miss a little tagline that says in-app purchases. Do you understand that some apps are free and they're not really free? I want to warn you about this app that you can download on your phone. It is a free app. There are no in-app purchases, but this app can cost you a fortune. If you're not careful, it can cost you your marriage. It's called Zillow. How many of you are familiar with Zillow? Let me see your hands. You're familiar with Zillow. Only a few. You haven't downloaded it. You need to stay off of Zillow. I I love the house that I live in. I'm not looking to move. I'm not looking to sell my house. I'm not looking to buy a house. But there is a lady who lives with me who would think that we're on the market looking to buy houses. She sends houses to me on a regular basis. She'll send a link. Hey, check out this house. I think, why am I checking out this house? I have a house. I don't need to look at someone else's house. Sometimes I'll get houses sent to me that aren't even for sale. Am I supposed to go knock on the door and see? If they're in the market to sell, I don't know why I would because I'm not in the market to buy. I'll get a text that says, oh, don't you just love this kitchen? And I'll think, yeah, it's nice. I, I like our kitchen. It has a fridge just like this one. has an oven and a stove and shelving space. This is great. Why would I want to look at this other person's kitchen? I, I have a kitchen myself. Some of you may not have downloaded Zillow, but I'm telling you, you need to stay away from it. You're in good company if you stay away from Zillow. The people to whom God was writing here And Jeremiah speaks to, he says to them, you need to start settling down. The people of Israel were nomadic by nature. They were nomads. They were tent dwellers. They were wanderers. It was their heritage. And what Jeremiah is saying to them is, stop renting and stop tenting, okay? It's time for you to stop doing those things. You need to settle down. Even in 600 BC, they needed the Zillow app more than I need it today. But they're telling them, hey, it's time to settle down. It's time to build a house. I've never built a house, but in my neighborhood, there's a property of land that went for sale, and a couple bought it, and they built their own house, and I think they built it in like three or four months. It went up really fast. You can build a house in probably three, four months, maybe a little more, maybe a little less. I'm not a farmer, but when he says plant gardens, I don't feel like that's something I could just whip together and do in a couple weeks or a couple months. I can't just develop a garden, and then start enjoying the produce of it. What he's indicating here is, you're going to be here for a little while. It's going to be longer than two years. I know what Hananiah said, but that's not actually the truth. You're going to be here a little bit longer than two years, so much so, I want you to build houses and live in them. I want you to plant gardens and eat the produce of them. You ought to get married, and you ought to raise children, and you ought to give your children in marriage and see your grandchildren. He cites three generations, and he's indicating to them, this is going to be a longer stay than just the eight years you've had and two years to come. He's instructing them, settle down. This is the new norm. He says, multiply there. Uh, Literally, it means don't dwindle. It's the same command that God gives to Adam in Genesis 1.28 when he says to be fruitful and multiply. He says, I want you to to get used to this, get used to life and turning your triumph uh, from tragedy, turning your tragedy into triumph. Listen to this quote by Warren Wiersbe. He says it better than I do. One of the first steps in turning tragedy into triumph is to accept the situation courageously and put ourselves into the hands of a loving God who makes no mistakes. Now, leave that up on the screen for a minute in case you want to write it down or take a photo of it, because that is said a lot better than I could say it. He is saying here, the first step that you have to do 
to turn your tragedy into triumph is you have to accept your situation courageously, but most importantly, you have to place yourself into the hands of a loving God who doesn't make any mistakes. You may think he made a mistake. You may talk to your friends and your neighbors and family, and they may say, I think God made a mistake here, but I'm telling you, God doesn't make any mistakes in your life. I don't know what you've been through or what you've lost or what you're enduring right now, what storm that you're going through in your life or with your family. God doesn't make any mistakes. And the first step that you need to do from moving from the tragedy that you're in to the triumph that God has in store for you is to put yourself in God's hands and realize he doesn't make any mistakes with what he does. I make mistakes. You make mistakes. If you haven't yet, you will before the day's over. Our church is not perfect. We make mistakes. You won't find a church that is perfect. If you put your faith and trust in me, I can promise you, I will disappoint you at some point in your life. Probably already have. Probably doing it right now. I'll disappoint you at some point in my life. But we, we put ourselves into the hands of a loving God that doesn't make any mistakes. We understand that that's the first step for triumph from our tragedies. He first addresses those with a fading hope, number one. Number two, he addresses those with a false hope. With a false hope. Did they have hope? Yeah, they had a lot of hope. It wasn't in a hopeless situation. Uh, they had a hope. It was in what Hananiah said. Jeremiah addresses those with a fading hope because life hasn't turned out like they thought it would. Now he turns to those with a false hope. They've got hope, but it's in all the wrong things. Look at verse 7. He says, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find welfare. God doubles down on the fact that he allowed Jerusalem to be sent into captivity to Babylon. He said it once. He says it the second time here in verse 7, and he'll actually say it again in verse number 14. Three times he takes responsibility for the exile. Look at verses 8 through 10. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they have, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. Look at verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. Now, I don't know what version you're using. Um, sometimes I use the New American Standard. Sometimes I use the King James. Uh, today I'm using the ESV. Look at verse 10 again, because I want to make sure your Bible says the same thing as mine, because if I'm receiving this letter, I'm not really happy with this news. Verse 10, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed, I'm sorry, I thought you just said 70, because Hananiah says two. He says we got two years left. We've been here for eight Hananiah says, two, you're saying the captivity is going to last how long? Did you say 70 years? How long do you think I'm going to be here? 70 years? There's no way this is right. Hey, Daniel, can you check this out? Hananiah, Mishael, Ezra, can you guys check this out? 70 years? I'm sorry. I thought I just read 70 years. Do you think maybe he could have meant seven? Well, no, he couldn't have meant seven because we've been here for eight. So that wouldn't make sense either. 70 years? That's not what this group of exiles wanted to hear. And I would love to tell you that the storm that you're in, just like the rain, is eventually going to stop sometime today, maybe tomorrow. I'd love to tell you, you're on the back end of your storm. You're, just, you're in tragedy. You're getting ready to get to triumph tomorrow. I would love to tell you that, but I can't because I don't know how long your exile or captivity will last. They didn't know until this. So you, you're saying it's going to be 70 years, so we're eight years down we thought we had two years to go, but you're telling us we have 62 years to go? You know the difference between two and 62? 
That's a big difference. You know the difference between a two-year-old and a 62-year-old? A lifetime. A lifetime. You talk to a two-year-old, they don't know nothing. You talk to a 62-year-old, they'll tell you they know everything. It's the way that life works. Two and 62 is a big difference. Now remember, you may not remember this from verse one, but this letter from Jeremiah was sent to the exiles, but it was actually hand-delivered to a particular group of people. It says in verse one that it was delivered to the elders. The elders. This is the leaders that were leaders in Jerusalem that got exiled to Babylon. This is the upper echelon of the leadership. You don't get to become an elder when you're 10 years old. The elders in a church are specifically the pastors and the deacons. Uh, Kyle and I are 36. We are the youngest of the elders at our church. So let me just put it into to perspective of an elder. If I'm an elder and I'm receiving this at 36 years old, and I realize we've had eight years of captivity, and I've got 62 years left at 36. That means the captivity is going to end, and I'm going to get to go home when I'm about 98 years old. This is disappointing to me. I would like to live to be 98. I'm not really eating like I want to live to be 98, but I would like to live to be 98. 98 is when I get to go home. I'm 36. Imagine being one of the elders that received this letter and you're in your 50s. Oh, okay, I'm in my 50s and I'm an elder and I've received this news that I'll be here for 62 more years. Well, that stinks. That's what I'm thinking if I'm one of the elders that received this and I'm in my 50s. For the elders, this was more than a new date. It was a death sentence. This is the news that nobody wants to get. And I'm talking to people who receive news like that this year. This is the news that nobody wants to get. The death of a loved one, the death of a career, a relationship, the death of a dream. You're in your 50s, you're one of the elders, and you read you got 62 years left. Here are your thoughts. I'm probably going to die here in Babylon. I'm never going to get to see the family that I left behind. I won't get to bury my parents. I'll never see my homeland again. I won't ever get to worship in the temple at Jerusalem like I did when I was a child. I'll never get back to it. You talk about a blue Christmas. That's the news that these people had just received in Jeremiah 29. This news was hard to hear because the exiled had placed their hopes in something that was not true. By the way, there's a lot of people in our world today that will give the same false hope. They'll tell you things that aren't true just to make you feel better about your life, to make you feel better about your situation. You see, these people wanted to believe Hananiah because he said two years and you'll be back home. But they knew the word of the Lord came through Jeremiah, and he said 62 years, and that was tough to hear. False prophets are alive and well today in our world. There's plenty of world religions that will tell you what you want to hear. Things like, hey, there's, there's no final authority. There's no absolute truth. God, well, there is no God. God is subjective. He's whoever you would want for him to be. There is no hope. There is no heaven. There is no hell. You see, Daniel, at age 15 at the time of exile, he would actually outlive the Babylonian empire and would have the opportunity to come back to Jerusalem. But it's as if most would not. He's saying, don't wait till the other shoe drops. Live your life for God. Choose to serve God today. You're not promised tomorrow, much less two years from now or 62 years from now. So he says, build homes, plant gardens, get married, raise a godly generation in the midst of a pagan culture. And I can't help but think he wants the same from us today. Hey, 
you can pray for the rapture. You can do it all you want to. We're in times. I got it. Pray for the rapture. Or you can plant houses or plant vineyards. You can build houses. You can get married and give in marriage and raise a godly generation of children and grandchildren in the midst of a pagan culture. You want to pray for the rapture? You go for it. I got stuff to do here. God wants me to live my life here today in this culture, in this generation. The captivity won't last forever, but this is the new normal. Verse 7, he says, seek the welfare or the peace of the city. He's telling them to adapt. Jeremiah is not condoning the worship of false gods in Babylon. He's not telling them to forsake the traditions of their forefathers, but he's saying, you got to get with the times. Culture isn't going anywhere. You better learn how to live here. In verse 7, he says, pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, you will find welfare. If you want to cloister up and hide from the culture that's out there, you can do it, and a lot of people do. Or you can pray and witness to the pagans that you're living with. Those are your choices. God is going to bless the pagans because you're here. Is that how we're living? Are we praying that God would just reach out, reach, and reach down and pull us out of the situation we're in? Or are we actually going to reach people in our culture? Jeremiah writes to these groups of people. Number one, he writes to those with a fading hope. Number two, he writes to those with a false hope. Number three, he writes to those with a faithful hope. Ultimately, Jeremiah wanted all the exiles to end up here in this category of hope. Look at verse number 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. That's what God wanted these people to understand. I've not abandoned you in exile. I've not left you there for dead. After 70 years are accomplished, I'm going to visit you. God says three things under this. Letter A says, I have a plan. I have a plan. My plan is I'm going to visit you. My plan is, I know the plans or the thoughts that I have for you. What he's saying here to the exiles is the same thing that he's saying to us today. God wants us to be faithful in exile because he has a plan that's bigger than today. If all you were living for was today, that would be a very bleak existence. But he says, I've got a plan that's bigger than today. It's bigger than your family. It's bigger than this church or this community. And in fact, it's going to outlive you. Could it be that God has a plan in what he's doing in your life and it doesn't make sense to you because it's going to outlive you and it's going to be made manifest in your children and in your grandchildren and for generations to come. He says in verse 11, my plans are for your welfare, your prosperity, your peace. I'm sending you a future and a hope. It's an expected end for a better tomorrow. And for many, it was a tomorrow that they would never physically see. When you look back at Genesis chapter 12 in the Abrahamic covenant, all the things that God promised to Abraham, very few of them came to pass in his lifetime. In fact, some of them are still being resolved even today. You you talk about the land over in Israel and the conflict that we are seeing unfold there. God's plan was not fully fulfilled in Abraham's lifetime, and you could argue it's still being fulfilled today. For many that were receiving this news, it was a tomorrow that God had promised that they would never physically see. But God says, I have a plan. Letter B says, I have a promise. I have a promise. 
His promise to them was threefold. And I don't have time to develop this for you, but in verse 10, he says, I'll visit you, I'll fulfill my promise or my good word to you, and I'll bring you back to this place. He says, I'll visit you, that's visitation. I'll fulfill my promise, that's application, because I'm up to something. I'll bring you back to this place, that's restoration. I'm not going to leave you there abandoned. I'm not going to leave you in exile. I'm not going to leave you to just fend for yourself. Visitation because I haven't abandoned you. Application because I'm working a work in your life even though you don't understand it today. And restoration because it's the land I swore to your fathers and their fathers before them and their fathers before them. And his promise to you today is I haven't forgotten about you either. I haven't forgotten about you. I know that it's bad. I know that it's bleak. I know that this year hasn't been the best. I know that you've experienced some suffering and some heartache, but I want you to know I haven't abandoned you there. I haven't left you in exile there. I'm going to visit you. I'm going to perform my good word to you. God knows where you're at. He understands what you've been through, and he promises to bring you safely back home. For many that were reading this, for some, it was a new home in Babylon, a house they would build and a vineyard they would plant. For some, it was a new home in heaven because they would not outlive the captivity. And for others, it was a new home back in Jerusalem because they would outlive the exile. God's plan for them was different than it is for each of us, but he always promises to bring his children back home. Let her see, and I'm finished. He says, I've got a plan, and I've got a promise, but I've got a purpose. I've got a purpose. Hey, I'll just be honest with you. I don't get what God is up to a lot of times in my life, I could not possibly explain to you what he's up to in yours. I, I don't know. We read verses 10 and 11. Here's the purpose. Look at verse 12. He says, Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. That's the purpose. It was the purpose behind their exile, and it's possibly the purpose behind yours because God wants a relationship. We see in what you're going through today, he says, you're going to seek me, find me, be found in me. It's redemption, it's re reconciliation, it's restoration back to the land, but ultimately, it's a relationship between you and God. It's a hope that he offers you, not just in a relationship with God, but through the person of Jesus Christ who would come later. I don't know what you're into or what you're up against or what you're struggling with. I don't know what you've battled this week. I don't know what baggage you walked in here with today. I don't know. But if you feel like you're in exile, I want you to understand God has a purpose behind it, and it's bigger than you are. It's bigger than you. It's bigger than me. It's bigger than what you're going through today. Don't give up. Don't lose heart. Don't rest in false promises. I want to show you a picture and then tell you a story. You may be thinking to yourself, Jason, that is really easy for you to say because you don't know what I've been through this year. You don't know the sickness that I've had. You don't know the loved ones that are sick and in the hospital. You don't know the people that have died. You don't know the careers that have ended, the relationships that have faded, the dreams that have died, the freedom that I've lost. Everything I've been through this year, you have no clue what it is I'm going through. And you're right. But I want you to understand that this is a sermon that I'm preaching to you today that I did not write this week. And I didn't write it this year. And I didn't write it in the last couple of years. 
This is a sermon I've shared with you today that I wrote at the end of 2015 and the beginning of 2016 at one of the lowest points in my life. Just to summarize, I lost my job, my church community, my home, my insurance, and I had just been diagnosed with cancer. I tell you that because I want you to know that I wrote this sermon seven years ago in what I felt was my own personal Babylonian exile, and it was this passage and it was these thoughts that got me the hope that I needed then, and it can be the same hope that you need today. This is a picture of En Gedi, and what you see here is a waterfall. This is a picture that was taken in Israel, which is a place I would have liked to have been last week with our group. We had 45 going to Israel. That didn't pan out. Uh, but in a previous time I was there uh, is where I received this picture. This is En Gedi. Uh, you would know En Gedi primarily from the stories of David. David had been anointed king, and then ever since he was anointed king, he was practically on the run. His brothers turned against him. Saul was against him. He had opportunities to kill Saul, but he had more integrity than that and didn't do it. And one of the places where he hid from Saul was a cave in En Gedi. And this is En Gedi. It's close to a cave where you see this water coming out. En Gedi, geographically, is close to the Dead Sea, which is the lowest point on earth. He's waiting on the promises of God. He's been anointed king, but nothing has happened yet. Imagine being like David, running for your life, hiding, fearful. Not only was David at the lowest point on earth physically, but he was experiencing the lowest point of his life spiritually as well. Right beside this cave is a freshwater waterfall, as you can see here in the photo. It's flowing with rainwater from the mountains above. Now, what you see in this picture is you see the waterfall right there on the edge of a cave. This is the very bottom of the mountain range there in En Gedi. You see that. Here's what you can't see from this photo. The mountains above it are very high, and the stream that ultimately shoots out this water runs very slowly. One of our guides, when I was there, shared this with me. He said, years ago, environmentalists wanted to determine how long it would take the rainwater from the top to reach the very bottom. So they put a chemical in the water and tracked it until it reached the bottom. You know how long it took? Seven years. And that doesn't make a lot of sense to me because I see rain that hits my roof and it's on the ground within seconds. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me to imagine rainwater hitting a mountain, going through a stream, and it takes seven years to get to this. Where's the picture? Where did it go? It takes seven years to get to this. This is where it comes out. And it took seven years. You don't see the rain coming down from heaven. You don't see it hitting the mountains and running through the stream. You don't see it taking seven years to process. But this is the end result. And the reason I tell you that is because God has your answer for your need, and it's probably already pending. It's probably already coming. It's in process. God sent this rainwater to David seven years before he knew that he needed it. And you're thinking to yourself, God, I need it today. And you know what? He may be saying, yeah, I sent it about five years ago. It's coming up. I, I sent it about six months ago. It's coming up. Because God knows what you need and why you need it. But most importantly, he knows when you need it. I, think, I like to think I know when I need stuff. But God knows when we need it. The hope that David needed in his lowest point of life was sent seven years before he knew that he needed it. That tells me that God is up to something in your struggle. He's up to something in your storm, and he's up to something in your suffering. The hope that you received from him today was sent long before you needed it. And if you need it today, on the authority of God's word, all I can tell you is it's probably on its way. It's probably on its way. Because if you're a child of God and you need a hope today that you don't have in and of yourself, you have to receive it from someone else 
and that someone else is Jesus. He offered hope to David. He offers hope to the Jewish exiles in our passage, and he offers the same hope to you. He's got a plan. He's made you a promise, but he's got a purpose in mind for what he wants to do with it. By life or by death, Jesus says to us, you can hope in me. The strength that you get today was sent long before you knew you needed it. So he says to us, don't look for false hope. Don't look for hope in other places. Jesus says, look for it in me. Let's pray this morning with your head bowed and your eyes closed. I want to give an invitation and the praise team will come. Maybe there's some of you here this morning and you would say, Jason, I do not have the hope of heaven because I do not know Jesus. I don't have a relationship with him, but I'd like to. I want to tell you today, you can find other religions, other churches, other places of worship, and other people that will tell you what you want to hear. But here's the truth. There's a million ways to get to Jesus, but there is only one way to get to God, and that's through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. You may have been told you can get to heaven on your good works, but let me just tell you, you can't. You, you may think you can get to heaven by being a good person. You will never get there. You may think you can atone for your sins on your own, and what you've done just isn't bad enough to deserve hell. The truth is, Jesus paid your sin debt. Jesus wants to have a relationship with you. And if you want to get to God and you want to get to heaven, there is no way to do that other than through Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you say, Jason, I, I've never done that. I've never made a decision to accept Jesus as my Savior, but I'd be interested in that. I'm not going to embarrass you. I won't call you out. If you'll just slip your hand up, all I want to do is pray for you. Is there anyone like that this morning that would say, I don't know for sure that I have a relationship with Jesus, but I'd like to. Anyone like that this morning? I won't belabor the invitation. Many of you today would claim to have a relationship with Jesus. I'm saved. I've got a relationship with him, but life has not panned out the way that I thought it would. I've lost people. I've lost jobs. I've lost a career. I've lost relationships. I've lost loved ones. I've lost my health. I don't know what I'm going to do. The only hope that I can offer you today is in Jesus. Jesus is our living hope. In him, our hope springs eternal. In him, there is life without end. You can have a relationship today with Jesus. And for those of you that have one, you may be thinking to yourself, why hasn't life turned out for me? Maybe it's on its way. Maybe the rainwater that you need today was sent years before you knew you needed it and God's getting ready to come through for you. Father, I love you. I'm thankful for the opportunity to share your word this morning. Lord, I'm thankful for the passage of the exiles in Jeremiah 29. I'm thankful that you did not abandon them or forsake them and you promised to not leave or forsake us. I pray that even in the midst of struggles and disappointment and tragedy and heartache and suffering, that you would be our living hope, alive and well within our lives to know that you have a future and a hope for us that may even outlive our existence here. God, I pray that we would put our hope in the only place that it truly belongs, which is in you. I pray that you would be pleased in that. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with me, if you will, all over the room. We're going to sing an invitation song. The altar's open. You come as the Lord leads.